I guess now we practice worshiping, huh? How about if you do none of the above? Is that, can you still worship? I think the question is, what in the world is worship? Uh, we uh, hear the word more than ever. I've been in church a long time, and I hear the word worship more today than I've ever heard it in my lifetime. Any, anybody agree? You hear it all the time. And I think we keep questioning, what in the world is worship? What, what is it? You know, the Bible's full of descriptions of worship uh, from the beginning to the end. From Genesis, by the time we come to Cain and Abel, they've been taught to worship, right? One worship right and one worship wrong. Uh, Noah gets off the boat, what's the first thing he does? He worships, right? You come through the book of Isaiah, wonderful pictures of heavenly worship. Revelation, great pictures of worship. So worship is something that's throughout scriptures as our calls to worship. Psalms are the book of worship. Uh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Psalm 96, 29. Time and again we're called to worship, but it still doesn't really answer the question, what in the world is worship? And I'm not real sure that any of us have a good handle on it. Worship's a hard word to define, isn't it? Isn't it hard? So when we come in, what is commonly called the worship part of the service? Come on. The music, right? And if is the music the only thing that we do to worship? No, because there's lots more to worship. If, if the reading of the word of God isn't worship, what is the reading of the word of God? And if praying isn't worship... What is praying? And singing, certainly, the, the Bible is full of singing, music. Sing to the Lord a new song. And so we were made to sing. I believe that music was created by God. I believe that melody was created by God. And I think he put in us a desire to sing to him, and then he gave us the ability to do it. So singing is part of worship, but it's not the whole story. And so, do we raise our hands in worship? Uh, do we keep our hands down? Do we look to the sky? Do we look to the floor? Do we kneel? Do we bow? Do we lay prostrate before him? What, how do we do this? Well, it's none of those things. It's obviously something much, much different than a posture. You can be in any posture in worship, can't you? And you know that. You know that innately. You just know it intuitively that your posture doesn't indicate whether or not you're worshiping. You know, I think the good place to start is to see what the definition of the word used in Scripture to worship. That seem reasonable to you? Let's see what the word means. And I, I counted them, I quit at 90 in the Old Testament, the word that's translated worship, and it's probably well over 100. I just ran out of energy and time to count them. But the word that's translated worship means to bow down. Now, that's easy for us to see, right? Is that when you bow down before someone, it's an act of submission. It's used of the Lord, but it's also used of earthly kings when people would bow before them. It's an act of submission. But it's used most often of the Lord, and the picture is of us coming before the Lord and bowing. Now, let me ask you a question. 
every time you bow before something, does that mean you're really submitting in your inner being, in your heart to it? No, not, not really. And so worship is more than a posture. Worship is something inside us. The New Testament, it, it's interesting that it shifts when you come to the New Testament because the word that's most commonly translated worship, if you can get the picture, is to kiss and then to turn toward. It's a, it's a combination of two words. So it's the idea of turning toward and perhaps kissing their hand or just, uh, just a sign of affection. But the idea of turning toward means giving the attention to. And so the, to kiss the hand is probably the best. And it was actually used to describe that, like kissing the hand of someone. You know, my, uh, my grandkids, oh, a couple years ago, got a dog from the dog pound. And this is an interesting dog. Her name is Lexi. And uh, this dog went from this close to being put to sleep, I think. She was rescued. And she came into the house, and now she is absolutely the queen of the house. I mean, she is treated so well. Uh, you talk about a dog's life. Some of us would like to live a dog's life. She lives well. She sleeps with the kids, and she just has it good. But I think Lexi kind of knew what was she was about to experience, and she has a great deal of gratitude. Because whoever walks in the house from the family... Lexi doesn't jump on them, but she will come to them and have this little thing she does with your hand, and she must do it. She won't quit. She has to do it. And so you put your hand down to her, and she doesn't really lick it exactly. How would you describe it, guys? What she do to you? She kind of nuzzles your hand. And it is obviously a sign of affection. This dog has no pride whatsoever. She is very humble before you. She just kind of comes to you and lets it all hang out and licks your hand and wants you to know she's so happy to see you. There's just adoration in that. And now I'm not likening us to dogs. <laughs> don't, don't get that. But I just think it's a good picture because it's kind of the idea of the New Testament word. It's to turn your attention towards someone and to have the adoration for them that you would take the time to kiss their hand. You know, I was in Moldova a number of years ago and uh, had a very humbling experience. The group that I was with had sent in humanitarian relief, and in the humanitarian relief, there were a lot of winter coat. And the area where we were working, uh, they were poor. I mean, really poor. They didn't have anything. We went into a home, a little home, tiny little house, with four or five generations. One room was the bedroom, and it had mattresses laying all over the floor, and that's where they slept. That was their bedroom, and they all slept in there, in this common room, and bare room to walk between the mattresses. But they had needed winter coats. They had no winter coats. Moldova's climate's very similar to ours, so imagine not having a winter coat this winter. And they had been able to get coats out of this shipment for all of their family. And we went into this home, and the lady there, who would be the mother of the house, came to us. Of course, I don't speak their language. I was speaking through a translator. But it, it was one of the more humbling things I've ever had happen. She came to us, and it was obvious she was expressing gratitude. And then 
she looked at us and she took our hands and she kissed our hand. And she was just trying to say thank you. And I, I stepped back from that and I was really uneasy with it because first of all, I hadn't done anything. I, and I tried to tell her that I, I didn't do this. I was just part of a group that did. But th there, in her gesture, she wanted us to know that she really, really appreciated us, you know. And, and so that was the way she could show it. I think that's worship. Now, I don't like to think she was worshiping us. But worship is turning toward the Lord. And as though we were taking his hand and saying, Lord, we adore you. We thank you. We have gratitude in our heart to you. That's worship. There's a couple other New Testament words that are translated worship. One of them is to serve. A few times it's to serve. So there's other words, but the most common one, Old Testament, bow down. New Testament, to look toward and to show your adoration, to kiss the hand. So that's, that's the Bible definition of worship. The word that we translate worship, the English word, is a whole different ballgame. The, the English word worship comes all the way through the Old English. And you've probably heard this before, but it's good for us to consider it. It, it starts with the idea of worth. So you, be, you begin with the worth of something, and then you add on it the suffix, what we spell out, S-H-I-P. And what it means, the character of worth, the quality of worth, right? We use the word friendship. When we say friendship, Greg and I have a friendship. It is the quality of their characteristic of a friend, right? Uh, a lot of men practice the gentlemanly art of one-upsmanship. You know what one-upsmanship is? Well, it's the quality of being one-up all the time. You know, that's one-upsmanship. So, so in, in worship, it is the quality or the characteristic of worth. So what we're saying to God when we worship him, is that, God, you're worthy. I think that's a great word, and it's a good depiction of how we feel toward the Lord. And, and that's what our worship is. And so if we're going through some sort of a mechanism, and it's not generated by an understanding of the worth of God, is it worship? I'm not sure it is. I'm not sure a posture. In fact, Going to church may or may not be worship. Singing may or may not be worship. Praying may or may not be worship. Bowing, serving, communion, which is, I think, one of the ultimate acts of worship, may or may not be worship. Reading scripture may or may not be worship. Uh, speaking of God's virtue, speaking out for him, it may be worship, it may not. Folding your hands, looking up, kneeling down. You know, all of these things can be worship. And, and they may be. And they may accompany worship. But they're not in and of themselves worship. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is that's much more than that. And I think there's a text in John chapter 4 that probably teaches as much about worship as any place in the Bible. And it's a really familiar story. You know it. But we're going to pull out some ingredients of worship out of John chapter 4. So let's read it in a moment. I'm going to read the story just to make sure you're familiar with it. We're going to start at verse 1 and read the whole story. So you bear with me 
and we're going to work through uh, John chapter 4. I think we should pray first, don't you? Let's pray. Father, we have in, in our hands your word. And Lord, we acknowledge that it came from you. And the story before us was put here by you for us. So as we read and as we contemplate, as we think of you and think of your worth, Lord, speak to us through your word. Uh, We need you. We acknowledge that. And Lord, we together, we say with a unified voice this morning that we, we want to bow before you. We want to bow our hearts before you. We want to bow our minds before you this morning. So invade our lives as you alone can, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, with just a few comments, if you have your Bibles, uh, read with me in John chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that uh, Jesus was making more disciples than John... Although Jesus himself didn't baptize, only his disciples did, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. The Pharisees began to see a danger. This guy is increasing in influence, and and they didn't like that, and they knew how much influence John had, and you know how John's life ended. So he decided it was time to move on. But look at verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now keep that verse in your mind. He had to pass through Samaria because he didn't. There were a number of ways to go to where he was going, and Samaria was only one of those paths, and the least likely because the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. We'll talk about that. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. You know, the Samaritans had a similar history to the Jews, but they left at a point, and it's a long story of how they got to where they were, but the, the Samaritans did not accept the prophets. They didn't accept the poetic books. They didn't accept the wisdom literature. They only believed in the Pentateuch, the writing of Moses. They believed that was scripture, but nothing more. And so there was a division, and there was an ethnic division between the Samaritans and the Jews. Now, they weren't friends. Verse 7. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to buy food. They must have stopped at McDonald's to get a bite to eat, right? The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, And he would have given you living water. What a peculiar answer. And you could imagine where her mind was going. And the woman said to him, Sir, you you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. 
Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me of this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw water. Let me just pause there for a second. Um, we're about to see that woman encounter the living water because that's really the rest of the story. Up to now, it's been about physical water or physical well. But obviously, Christ is talking about something much, much more and much more important than the water we drink, as important as that is. He's talking about something within. And she's about to encounter it. And look how she does it, or how he does it first. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman said, you're wrong. That couldn't describe me. That's not me. I didn't do that. That's not me. No, she said, sir... I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, he has her attention. Why does Christ have her attention? Because he knows what? He knows her heart, doesn't he? He knows what's inside her. Christ has her undivided attention because he's looking in her heart now. Verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming that neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. Now, let me pause there just long enough at verse 23. If you look at the book of uh, Romans, uh, Paul asked the questions in the beginning of Romans 3. He said, well, what advantage is there in being a Jew? Remember that? And the answer is this, much advantage in being a Jew because through the Jew came the oracles of God. Through the Jew came the word of God. Think about who it was that recorded all of Scripture for us. It was the Jew. It was God's people, the Jewish nation, that he used to bring us Scripture. And so... Uh, in verse, in verse uh, 22, we pick it back up and say, read that again. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know because the Lord's revealed it to us and through us. Um, for salvation is from the Jews, Christ being a Jew. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Then in verse 24. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. <coughs> Excuse me. The woman said to him, 
I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he has come, he will speak or tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. And they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left the water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town, and they were coming to him. You know, any time you deal with a text like this that has been dealt with so many times and so well, it's, it's just a little unnerving because there's probably a hundred messages out of this, and there's lots of great messages that come out of this text. And so as I read through this text, I've pulled out some things. I'm not exhausting it. Yeah, I don't, don't think that I think I am. But I think what we're going to see is valid right out of this text. And you just track with me, and you see if you see it. The first one is, what in the world is worship? Well, worship is not a location, right? Because Christ said, verse 21, um, if you, whether you worship on this mountain or that mountain, doesn't matter. It's not limited to a location because worship is in spirit and in truth. Now, he still doesn't exactly explain that. He's going to. But he tells her it's not a location. Worship is not coming to church. It's just not. My mother used to tell me all the time, I can worship the Lord at home. Was she right in that statement? Yeah, she was right. Of course you can and should. If we only worship when we're at church, we're really shortcutting the Lord. That's not good. We need to worship all the time. However, Scripture clearly teaches that we're to come together in worship, that, that coming together is part of God's plan, and there's something in corporate worship that you do not get anywhere else. I'm going to tell you more about that at the end because I, I was in a, a corporate worship yesterday. And, Kevin, was it good? Yeah, it was. And there, there's a dynamic in us coming together and worshiping together that you can't reproduce at home. And the teaching at home, you, you don't get the input of others. We need the input of others. And mom was right in as much as she said, but she was missing something. She was missing the advantage of us coming together. So worship is not limited to our location. The second thing I see, and, and listen to this carefully. Worship in this world is based on knowing God and knowing about God. Now, in this section, Christ said, you worship what you don't know. You don't know. You don't understand. You don't know who I am. You don't know about me. You need to know about me, and then you need to know me. There is a knowledge component to worship. Worship is not all emotion. Certainly, emotion is part of it, right? We ought to worship with emotion. In fact, think about the the thought of the heart of man, just for a moment, because we're to worship with all our heart. What is the heart of man? Is it this thing that pumps the blood? Is that what he's talking about when he talks about a heart? I don't think so. So what is it he's talking about? 
He's talking about the whole man. He's talking about our moral character. He's talking about our emotional character, our mental character, our whole being. When we worship the Lord, we are worshiping with our whole being. We're worshiping with our intellect. Why? Because we know what he did. We know who he is. Jesus came to this earth to save me. Jesus died on a cross for my sins. Jesus was resurrected again. And through that resurrection, I have new life. And so I know about him. If I don't know about him, how can I worship him, right? How can I worship what I don't know? There's a knowledge component to worship. We have to know who God is. And I think that's why his word's so important. It's an important part of it. That we're drawn to him as we learn more about him. We love him more because of who he is. The, the third thing that I see there, you see this like in verse 23 and 24. And this is important, is that worship comes from the inner man. Worship comes from our spirit. Raising the hands is fine. If you've taken note, I probably don't raise my hands, if at all, very seldom. Why? It was just not my culture, and it is not my comfort zone. If I raise my hand, I'm afraid that I'm doing it much more to please you than I am to please the Lord. And so I don't do it. uh, Do some of you kind of feel the same way? Folks, it's okay. You don't have to raise your hands to worship. Isn't that good? Huh? I'm glad for that because sometimes I may not put my deodorant on and I, you know, so I'm glad I don't have to raise my hands. Uh, sometimes I look up. Uh, maybe I got a kink in my neck, but just maybe I'm contemplating the vastness of God and his creation. And in that looking up, I'm, I'm worshiping. And sometimes I look down. Why do I look down? Because when I look down, I'm, it's a sign of my submission to him, right? It's a sign that I'm, I'm saying, God, I'm yours. And so, looking down. Sometimes we kneel down. Now, we don't do that much. It's not part of our culture. And let me tell you, when you get to this point in life, when you kneel down, sometimes you can't get back up. So, so I don't kneel down a lot. But I want to kneel my heart. I want inside of me to be kneeled. I want to be in submission to him. And so it's coming from within me. It's coming from my heart. It's coming from this whole being, Phil. It's coming from my mind. It's coming from my emotion. And it's coming from my will. I'm making a decision. God, I'm going to honor you. God, I'm going to acknowledge who you are. That's a decision. That's an act of my will. Your being here this morning is an act of your will. You decided to be here, right? And I trust that you came because you wanted to be part of a corporate worship to honor the Lord. You're not going to hear anything that profound. And sometimes it's just not going to be that good. But you know what? That's okay. Because we've come together to worship the Lord. Sometimes the songs are going to be right on, spot on. And sometimes they may not be. It's okay. Because we've come to worship the Lord. Yes, we ought to do our best. You know, and I, I, I've told you before, I don't like to get up here and stumble, which I do sometimes. And I want to do my very best. But that's not what's going to determine worship. 
What's going to determine worships? What's in your heart? That's what's going to determine your worship. And you, so we need to make a decision that we're going to worship. And then what you find out is that your emotion follows your decision. Make the decision and watch your emotion follow. We cannot be ruled by the emotion. Because I think too often I watch, uh, and I, Lord forgive me for judging, but I'm going to judge. I watch a particular church, and I watch their worship. And I watch the smoke coming out of the platform, and I watch the production on the platform. These guys are absolutely amazing musicians. I mean, they're the best of the best. And the environment that they're in is astounding. And I look around, and people are, you know, all kinds of postures. Now, I don't know if they're worshiping. If they are, thank the Lord for that church. But, you know, with all the smoke and mirrors, it may or may not be worship, right? And it doesn't mean because they're there, they're worshiping. They're using the word, but they may or may not be worshiping because it's coming from within us. Worship can be vain. It can be empty. It can be unacceptable. Christ said, uh, Matthew fifteen eight, he said, This people honors me with their lips, but in vain their heart is far from me, and in vain do they worship me. They honor me with their lips, what they're saying. They might honor me with their action, but their heart, it's way out there. They're thinking about dinner, lunch, uh, golf, uh, what they could be doing. They're thinking about the grass and these They're thinking about a thousand things, and they're not thinking about me. And so in vain, they do worship me. They, their worship is simply not getting anywhere above the top of their heads by their posture. And he said that to religious people, incidentally. He said that to people who were accustomed to doing certain things in their worship, to the Pharisees. Then there's another thing I see here. I think this is important. You see it in verse 17. You see it again in 28 and 29 in a more subtle way. But I think worship is always accompanied by an honesty within us and an honest repentance. How can I say this? I, if, if we are saying no, God, in something he's asking us to do, you can't worship. How can you worship when you're saying no, right? You, you, you might as well stop right there. Your worship isn't going anywhere. We can't say no, God, in worship. This woman, when he said, go get your husband, what'd she say? She didn't say, you don't know me. She didn't try to hide it. She told him, she, he said, you've had five, and she said, you're right. You're right. You got it. You're, you nailed it. You're right where I am. And that's where worship starts, isn't it? God, you're right where I am. You know me. You know me inside and out. And so we offer our transparency to him, just like this woman. And then when she went into town, I can just picture that journey. She threw that water pot down. In the town she went. And I don't think it was any calm, collected voice that she said, there's a guy out here that told me everything I ever did. Do you? Do you? I think she had an excitement about her. And she ran into that town and she said, hey, I think the Messiah's out here. I think he's here. Because he just told me everything about myself. They knew her. They knew she'd had five husbands. And she said, he just told me all about my own heart. 
He told me about my inner being. He told me who I am. It's the Messiah. And, and then they all come out. And I think that's the starting point of worship is to, to, with integrity. We come before the Lord, repentant as need be. God, we want to lay ourselves open, don't you? And we're saying, yes, God, not no God. Yes, God. Yes, God. That's worship. That's where worship starts. And I see it in her. There's, a, there's an integrity in her. And there's also, I think you see a repentance in her, a turning away. She's turning back. She's doing 180. Then there's something here that I really treasure. When he says in verse 4, the old King James says, he must needs go through Samaria. Sometime I like the King James. But he didn't have to go through Samaria. In fact, he shouldn't have gone through Samaria. That's the long and the short of it. There were other ways to go and preferable ways. But why must he needs go through Samaria? He goes and sits down at the well. And the very first person he encounters is who? The woman coming to draw water, right? First person. So why must he needs go through Samaria? Because there was a woman there. There was a woman there that needed to know him. There was a woman there that needed to worship him. That's why he had to go through Samaria. And then he says, and I like this, guys, verse 28, uh, or verse 23, rather, last part. He says, uh, I'll just read the whole of 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worship, worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. Is God seeking us to worship him this morning? Do you think? I think so. He went to that woman. Shouldn't have been talking to her. He should have gone by her. But that's not who God is, folks. That's not who he is. He is a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. And he said to her, I'm seeking people like this to worship me. Do you see it? You know, why did he have to go? Because there was a woman there that needed him, that needed to worship him. And then we find out in a minute there's men there coming out of the village. They needed to worship him. They needed to know him. They needed to know about him. And he's calling them to worship. Why must he needs go through Samaria? Because of people. And he was seeking people to worship him. This morning, I believe God is seeking people to worship him. I just believe that. I believe it. I believe it this morning in this little body. God is seeking people to worship him. Not somebody else. Not the person next door, but you. He's seeking you to worship him. That's what he's doing this morning, isn't he? That's the call in our life, is to worship him. You know, there, a few years ago, I think it was in the 90s, a guy named Matt Redman uh, wrote a song. You remember what it was? It was called The Heart of Worship. Do you know the story behind that song? It's a very interesting story. Matt Redman is a Brit. We won't hold that against him. The revolution's over a long time ago. But uh, he was a British guy, and he was in a, a large church, and obviously they had great music. He was involved in the music. And the leader of the church came to a point where he felt like 
they were out of balance. They were messed up. And I, I don't know everything that went through his mind and heart, but he felt like that they had lost the heart of worship in their services. So you know what he did? He did what I'd like to do sometime. He dumped the microphones, got rid of the amplification, got rid of the, all the instruments on the platform. No band. Can you imagine? Yeah? Can you? And so he dumped it all. And then they went back and he said, okay, we're going to worship. And we're just going to do it kind of spontaneously. He said at first it was really awkward. You can imagine. It's awkward enough that you can't hear me anymore, right? <laughs> but they decided that they were going to change what they were doing. And so they did. And at first it was slow. Then soon somebody would just begin in a song, in a hymn, a chorus, and somebody would begin praying, and somebody would begin to read scripture. And pretty soon what they found is that the body raised up and the worship changed. It changed the whole climate of their worship. You know, I appreciated the quietness of the worship this morning. I thought it was good. It was a change of pace. You didn't have any idea I was going to talk about this, but I thought it was a change of pace. But Later, they did reintroduce their sound system, and they reintroduced their band. But, but out of the experience, this is what he wrote. He wrote a ballad. You know the song. We've sung it. It says, when the music fades and all is stripped away, I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you, Jesus, isn't it? Isn't it? Worship's not about us, guys. Worship's all about him. Then that, that next stanza, I may have skipped one, but it says, I bring you more than a song, more than a song, because a song in itself is not, not what you've required. You search much deeper within. Through the way things appear, you're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'd say amen to that, wouldn't you? Isn't it all about Jesus? He's seeking those who will worship him. There's one other thing out of this story, is that real worship is cageous, guys. It is, because that woman, after encountering Jesus, went back into Samaria, and she... With, with no inhibitions, with no reservation, she said, there's a guy out here at the well, and we need to go see him. He's told me everything about myself. He is the Messiah. Come on. And what happened? The whole gang of them came out there. Do you think that if our hearts are filled with adoration and worship to the Lord, that it would be contagious? And, and shouldn't we seek to be there? that other people would see Christ through our own adoration of him? Shouldn't we seek to be there? You know, yesterday we went to, a, a Friday night and Saturday, we went to a men's conference uh, at Alliance Christian Center. Neat experience. Who do we have here that was there? Let's see. A couple of them are missing this morning, but Nate was there, Mark was there, Kevin was there. And, and uh, we sat with 100 other men, some black, some white, 
some from churches that are a little different than us. Some of them churches are a lot different than us. But what a neat experience. Wasn't it, Mark? Wasn't it good? And then at the end, at, we had just a couple times where we, we sang together. We worshipped in music together. And at the end, there was over 100 men there, and they sang this. I wish I could sing it, but I won't. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit, and he has given us new life. We believe in the crucifixion. We believe that he conquered death. We believe in the resurrection, and he is coming back again. Kevin, could somebody have sat there with that group of guys yesterday and that not been contagious? No. Were you drawn into that? Yeah. Mark, were you drawn into that? Nate, were you drawn into that? Uh, did you sense that there was the, a unified heart there that was saying, we believe? And some of them were raising their hands, and some of us were sitting there like a bump on a log. But let me tell you something. My heart was filled at that moment. Mark, I didn't see you dance around much. You didn't? No. But, but, but did you sense that we were worshiping together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and was it built around truth? Absolutely. It was built around the fact that we believe in God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We believe in his death. We believe in his resurrection. And, folks, it was contagious. It sucked me right in. <laughs> it was a good time together. would have impacted anybody there, whether they were a believer or not. And so what, what should we take away from this? What, what's, what's the thing we take home from this? I think what I take home is this, guys. God is seeking true worshipers, and that's us, right? Can we take that away? God is seeking people whose heart is in tune with him. God's seeking people who adore him, who love him. God's seeking people who say yes to him. Yes, Lord. Not no. Yes, Lord. That's what he's seeking. Can we pray together? Lord, I uh, read through this passage and, and my heart is moved, moved because you have said through your word that you are seeking worshipers. Lord, I don't understand that fully. You don't need anything. You don't depend on us for your existence. You don't depend on us for anything. And yet you're seeking worshipers. You're seeking people whose hearts are aligned with you, who have decided, Lord, to worship you, to obey you, to honor you, just as this woman that we read about. And, Lord, we, we do that this morning. I, I pray that in our hearts this morning that we would just say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Whatever it is you're calling us to do. And then out of that, out of your goodness, out of your mercy that's been so clearly demonstrated, Lord, that we would 
offer back to you the adoration as we turn our attention to you, as we lean and bow before you, as we kiss your hand to show our affection. Lord, I pray that our worship this morning would be acceptable to you. And I pray as we've read your word that we have a sense of your goodness, a sense of who you are, a sense of your compassion for people, because that is who you are. And Lord, thank for people who have gone before us. I thank you for Matt Redman. Thank you that he had the heart to look at worship and look at what it was. And we can't fully define it, but we know, Lord, that you are the center of worship. Jesus, you're worthy, and you are the center of our worship. And we direct our attention, our affection, our goods, our being. We direct it to you this morning. And we pray it in your name and the one who died for us. Amen.